if you were to build uniswap in a complete private world what does that even mean that means all the state that is stored by the uniswap contract would be private me as a trader wouldn't even know how much liquidity there is in an eth dai pool this episode is brought to you by fastlane trustless mev gmgm everyone my name is degachi the host of scraping bits and today i'm with raul how's it going man hey good to be here yeah great to have you on we actually talked some time ago i applied for you know a security position for crypto at reddit <laughs> but uh yeah didn't happen so we're here interviewing you of why that didn't happen okay <laughs> <laughs> just for some context uh for you know who you are who are you and and what do you do for the people that don't know you yeah so i'm based in london i'm currently a blockchain engineer at aztec aztec is a zk rollup mm-hmm. trying to add a layer of privacy using your knowledge on top of zk rollup so also scaling ethereum along the way before this i was working at reddit crypto team which is how i got to know you uh, we're doing a yep. bunch of stuff there with community points and like collectible avatars in the reddit wallet before that mm-hmm. i was working very briefly at the ethereum foundation and at blue sky i was researching there on how does a decentralized social media work yeah and before that i was like in university and while i was studying computer science i was also freelancing in blockchains but i actually right. spent most of my time not in the ethereum world but in other blockchains so it started off initially in like you know the hyperledger like the uh, permission oh, blockchains yeah. which probably don't exist anymore and then <laughs> it went into like hedera hashgraph which is not really a blockchain oh, yeah. but still like you know a dlt i i really mm-hmm. love like the concept of hedera which is why which is what like pulled me in sort of thing but yeah after all of that um when i stopped freelancing in my like final semester of university I kind of started researching again, learned about layer 2s, learned about this weird thing called Uniswap and DeFi and got back into the Ethereum ecosystem and sort of haven't left it since. Mm. Yeah, crazy. Uh, and you know, it's quite interesting you mentioned Hedera. I I tried to jump on that as well, but I oh, think nice. it was just so early that I couldn't actually get anything to work. <laughs> the dev tool yeah. was just disgustingly bad. And that moment I realized, you know, if there's no tooling for a network, it's it's done for um and so you know ever since then i've been like wait okay tools are essential and you know if you have private or public obviously if you have private you have stuff that other people don't and then you can leverage that for your own kind of like use case but you know for a public blockchain and there's no tooling especially cross compatible ones like foundry or hardhat that's not working you can't even fork the mainnet So no. you know I couldn't even integrate anything <laughs> because like I couldn't like fork anything or test it so I was like okay, all right not doing this this is done Yeah yeah um, because it's not even EVM compatible but there is like so I was also there like really early I was one of the first sort of community members and because of how early I was later on I was like called something like MVP like a most valued professional because I just spent yeah. so much time from a dev's point of view there is something to be said about being sort of super early yes it's mm-hmm. the most frustrating thing you can do right there's a <laughs> because nothing works and there are like obvious bugs everywhere but from a long term perspective you actually learn so much because that's one of the only times you aren't facing abstraction layers so you have to go all the way in and you finally mm-hmm. learn protocol like today if you use hard hat and stuff you kind of don't need to know any much about ethereum you know or like how yeah. the EVM actually works and that's great cuz you can have more and more devs to use it mm-hmm. but as a as a personal choice you don't 
you aren't forced to learn things that are so deep kind of thing yeah um, it's like you don't have to learn rpc calls of the underlying technology that these abstracts are you know using exactly yeah so is, like yeah you know, a major downside i only just recently learned how to use rpc calls directly to get you know storage you know the byte code of something how to even do a transaction just from an rpc call so i was like damn that was a massive skill gap which was a you know essential that i only just learned you know two two years into like the journey um yeah no for sure and like i think as i mean when i was in uni i was interacting with these like super senior developers or like principal staff software engineers with mm-hmm. 15 20 years of experience and like that was the one obvious gap that i saw is like they actually know everything they have like unraveled all the abstraction and they mm-hmm. can talk at every layer whereas obviously mm-hmm. i couldn't right like so one of the things i used to joke with my friends in uni is yes i'm apparently doing a university computer science degree but i am actually learning everything through hedera um cuz yeah i also mm-hmm. didn't know what rpc is and then I learned about, you know, Google Protobuf and why would you use Protobuf over something like REST APIs, which is what I would naively think is the best way forward. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. Because REST APIs are easy. Why would you not use REST APIs? What is this proto thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and like a bunch yeah. of all of these like serialization issues, What what is an SDK? Why should you create it? Even like you learn about DevX, like what is a good SDK looking like? And I'm hoping that, you know, all of that is somehow going to get used in my current time at Aztec uh, when I am mm. now building all these tools for devs to use. Nice, yeah. And, and how's that going? How are you really, like, <clears throat> taking the approach to to really build something that, a you know, a dev would have a good experience on? Yeah, so, like, one thing that's interesting is because the blockchain space has been around for such a long time now, um, there are so many tools. So now that we are building Aztec, which is not EVM compliant, which means, you know, hard hat or foundry like tools wouldn't exist mm. to get those kinds of developers. There is much more work that needs to be done. We can't just launch without any of these tools. So we would now either, you know, like partner or build your own versions of all of these tools, like build your own test clients. But at the same time, you're doing that. You're also building the whole protocol. So there's a much bigger lift that needs to be done um but yeah it's it's interesting because again like you you're forced to think about all these small things that you usually wouldn't Aztec is such an interesting you know kind of domain because it's zk on an ethereum kind of i guess yeah. base right so it's like privacy first crypto so like were you in you know cryptography before this or you you know got hired as tech and then started doing the script yeah I had stuff. I had no sort of professional background in cryptography at all um, so I got hired and now I'm like forcing myself to learn <laughs> nice yeah but yeah so, again like one of the good things about software abstraction is again depending on what part of the stack you're working on you might get away with not knowing every single individual detail about yeah, cryptography. As long as you can learn, I think that's the main thing. Adaptability is the... Yeah, adaptability, but also like learning how to operate in an environment where you don't know everything and you might never know everything. Yeah, yeah. So so what do you really do at Aztec right now on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, yeah. So like I'm officially on like the smart contracts team, but 
currently we're working across the entire stack. So that means like the smart contracts that power the roll-up side of Aztec. Um, and then like a little bit of work across the sequencers and the nodes. Um, and then also on Noir. Noir is Aztec's own language. It was, it, it's like predominantly used to write circuits. So kind of like a competitor to Circon, if you will. But we yeah. are also trying to use Noir as a way to write smart contracts on top of Aztec. So that requires a lot of additional libraries um, and a lot of toolings on like, how would you do that? So building all of that. So like literally right now, my literally current day is creating cheat codes, kind of like how you have in Foundry or Hard Hat um, to manipulate, let's say the block timestamp or to load a certain value at a storage slot or to store a certain value at a storage slot. Right, right. So you're basically building like a foundry for Aztec right now, um, kind of like an emulator, if you if you will. Yeah, yeah. And what are the problems you've kind of faced while building this emulator? And what are the strategies you really take? Actually, let's start with, yeah, what are the problems you, you face when building an emulator? Uh, so some of them are like just like generic software engineering, like kind of, issues which is the fact that okay we're still too early we haven't launched like sort of even a testnet yet and there's a lot of parts of the protocol that still need to be figured so sometimes when you want to create a cheat code you also need these emulators you need to maybe create like your own test client like a which might require a lot of surgery into the current protocol like maybe bypassing certain authentication schemes or whatever so does it even make sense to do it now when the protocol might change a lot or at what point does it make sense and the other parts are like okay what if we sort of change the definition of what the cheat code is does so for example like let's say you want a cheat code that changes the current block or the next block right now what does changing mean it can mean reducing so if you're on block 100 make it say i'm on block two or increasing Right. So what if you just change it to say, hey, OK, you can't like decrease, you can only increase. So it's like one way. So like creating your own assumptions and stuff. But that is like all of this is like just more like standard software engineering stuff. And it's also like requiring to think about like, OK, but how would like in what cases would someone ever need to like change the block number? And then you go like, OK, there's probably in like a lending example where you have to mess around with interest rates. Right. Like Aave or whatever. OK, so like. How would they use it? And then try to see if you can use it that way, basically, with like minimum requirements, changes to the protocols. But sometimes mm-hmm. you can all, you also go like, okay, but maybe all, all of this work doesn't make sense given like the new requirements or like given of how much work it needs. So just like saying, okay, let's just not do this for this release, maybe come back to it at a later release. So that part is more like generic software engineering rather than like, yeah, the like problems just specific to Aztec. Which is nice, I guess. can be frustrating if like all of your problems are just related to this one idea that (laughs) everyone is chasing. It's kind of the same as, uh, you know, releasing a a protocol or an MVP, at least. You've got to prioritize the essentials of what's absolutely necessary. Um, Yeah, like one thing I I really understand. So this is my first time in like working in sort of a deep tech startup. Like I've worked Mm -hmm. in, for example, like my previous company at Reddit right? Like, or at app level companies where you're building a product and it's okay if sometimes it's buggy, you can just ship it really quickly. So to gain market cap, 
right? Like famously started by like Amazon. My my first job out of uni was actually in Amazon Alexa. And when Alexa was launched, it was infamously buggy. It was really bad and extremely hacky. Mm, yeah. But it's fine. There are no, yes, sometimes it might be a bad user experience, but I can always improve it. So it makes more sense to like ship it quickly. But other times you want to be really, really slow and really, really careful. When? Like when it has to do with security or cryptography. So like, you know, the core Ethereum protocol or like the core Aztec protocol, right? Mm -hmm. Like if there is like a bug in one of her circuits, that's a no-no. So like before our launch, we have to spend a really, really, really long time just Mm -hmm. auditing and making sure that like there are no bugs in the most critical parts of the code base. And there again, it's like, yeah, okay. So it's like some parts of the code base are really critical. That would be our proving system. But then there are some parts that can be buggy. It shouldn't be ideally, but they can be buggy and it's okay. For example, like uh, writing NOAA contracts. That'll be a very bad developer experience if it's buggy, but at least there won't be any fundamental issues with Aztec. Like you can always fix them at the next release. Mm. Mm -hmm. That's interesting, yeah. And, you know, you have to learn this whole cryptography thing as well. On top of that, it's like how private transactions and public transactions work, um, which is, you know, terrific once it starts like rolling out, right? You, you have such in-depth knowledge. Yeah. It's also interesting because um, in Aztec, we'd have two kinds of states. We'd have a UTXO kind of model, like in Bitcoin. Yeah. Um, and that will be how we model our private state. But we'll also have a public stake state. And that will be like Ethereum, so an account state model. So developers will be working with both, right? And UTXOs famously, they have their own issues. We know that from like programmable UTXO blockchains like Cardano, right? So like, okay, yeah, how do you manage those UTXO issues? Like the UTXO concurrency issues or whatever. And there's also like, you have to teach developers on how to think about these things kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, you want to abstract all this cryptographic stuff. So yes, maybe we need to know it as Aztec Lab employees, but the devs can get away without knowing. Just like how me and you got away without knowing what RPC calls until slightly later in our lives. Yeah, yeah, sure. And I think like the hardest thing, because um, I had Mandaya on from Aztec as well previously, and we talked a, yeah. a lot about Aztec at the fundamental level. And, you know, from a smart contract point with like Noah, I guess the hardest thing I would think about is, you know, creating your own circuits, right? So, basically, so I guess... You know, once the wire is released and Aztec's launched, I guess how how does one create a circuit? And you know, what is a circuit to begin with? And then, you know, how do you create one? Yeah, so like the easiest way to think about what a circuit is is by forgetting everything about cryptography. So in in my like year ten of university, we were learning about of high school, sorry, we were learning about Boolean algebra you know, like AND gates and OR gates and NAND gates and so on. And we had to draw these like diagrams of like, how would you draw like X and Y combined with OR Z? And the way we draw them is like, you know, you have X, Y, and Z in circles, and then you draw a line between X and Y, and both of them go through this AND gate. And there's a certain notation of how you draw an AND gate, and then you connect it with an OR gate that is connected to Z. Right. So it's like a literal electric circuit kind of diagram. And that's a circuit. That's it. (laughs) So when people Hmm. say like gates and stuff, uh, you know, like this has one million gates or 100 million gates or whatever. They mean like these gates, like and gates or gates or whatever. 
or like obviously slightly more complex gets to. With Noir, to come back to your other question, our goal is that you shouldn't know that you're writing circuits. It should feel like a normal programming language. Because like at least within the context of Aztec, the network, you're using Noir to write your smart contracts, right? Outside of Aztec, the network, you can also use Noir as a competitor to Circom to write circuits, but that's different. Like sort of within my like job purview, like as an engineer for Aztec network, it's like, how do you use mm-hmm. Noir the smart contract language? Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. And you know, when, when there's private and public transactions, it also brings the idea of, you know, if, if I was to do, well, first of all, I can obviously transfer tokens from myself to another wallet anonymously, right? Yeah. That's, that's a possibility. Yeah, for sure. You know, there's going to be exchanges where there's going to be native as well, where you can do, you know, swaps anonymously. And then you will really have this hard time tracking where's this money coming from. You can fund basically a wallet anonymously. Uh, I think the most interesting thing with, you know, when, when this comes out is the bridges, uh, anonymous bridging from, I guess you, you put in from EVM to, you know, Aztec and Aztec to another one back to back. Yeah. And so, this- yeah, again, there you have to, yeah, this is like Aztec connect territory. So like this was before I joined, but Aztec had a product called Aztec connect where uh-huh. you would have Aave and Unishop and all these really, you know, really big, DeFi protocols on layer one on Ethereum. And we built like this mini Aztec network on which you like kind of like a very small layer two, but not a fully programmable layer two by any means. And what you could do is you have these funds like Ether or Dion L1. You first of all, like let's say you bridge them and then you do liquidity pooling. So like you and a bunch of people come together and put a combined amount of money into Uniswap. Right. So now in L1, you don't know that it was actually me and you who had put money in Uniswap. What you know is Aztec Connect address put some money into Uniswap. But of course, like you can always run like, you know, old school statistics to track money flows and try and figure out where the money is going kind of thing. So, again, you have to be like a bit more careful with how you want to leak your privacy. And all that. Yeah, like yeah. what I mean to say is like I could be I could do something really dumb, like first move like hundred ETH from you know Ethereum to like this Aztec Connect thing, yeah. and then literally the next second put all of that hundred ETH in Uniswap as an LP. Then everyone kind of knows it was me. because yeah, the amount <laughs> yeah, matches yeah. and it's literally the next second. You know? Yeah, you, um, you've got then there's no privacy to be gained there. Like everyone yeah, knows yeah. what what is happening there. You've got a you know implement delays and all that stuff so yeah it's really hard to track obviously but then you know it's kind of interesting the whole zk realm not just specifically aztec but the entire zk kind of vm space is you know we saw this thing with tornado cash where they just got sanctioned (laughs) and now you're bringing in like these vms which are capable of you know uh, enabling people to create dozens hundreds of these <laughs> these tornado caches or you know variations of some sorts but also new protocols of lending etc also zk lending is going to be very interesting um but yeah i wonder how this is all going to play out because obviously 
Tornado Cash was sanctioned. But um, I think, how can you stop, you know, a whole decentralized network, right? Because it's like, all they did really was just sanction the website, got rid of the code of GitHub. But when you have, you know, decentralized networks, nobody running nodes, I mean, it's going to become unstoppable at that point, unless you completely just, I mean, yeah, just so many things you have to account for at that point, right? Yeah, it's also like, I mean, it also depends like what as an app developer you want to do. Mm. There's always like things you can do, like let's say you want to be like compliant, which is your decision and maybe you should, right? Then you can have like a bit of proof of compliance in there, which is necessary. Like it'll be quite (laughs) sad if everything that's happening on on a blockchain network is illegal. That kind of proves the point of like, you know, all the people out there who hate blockchain and say it's for drugs. And I certainly don't want my work to be used just for drugs or something. Yeah. <laughs> um, like I spent a lot of time in the product space and like the app level space. So I'm like excited to see all these like super interesting new ideas that come to life and how people will approach it in terms of like, yeah, reducing maybe the legal risk or uh, the censorship risk or other things yeah i think that's like the best thing of working in like a protocol layer is like you really open your if you want to be that kind of an engineer you open yourself up to like learning about every single small thing that an app level person should think of because they will they will know that run into issues and they will obviously come to you as the you know the protocol developer mm-hmm. and the owner says that yeah the protocol developers have actually thought about how they want the network to be used because otherwise you can't design a good product right mm-hmm. if you haven't even thought about how the use cases would happen yeah i mean like obviously someone is going to create a tornado cash equivalent and you know they'll be able to do this with a anonymous funding uh, anonymous funded uh wallet and so it's not like a normal metamask you can generate a wallet fund it via, you know, an anonymous transaction or private transaction and then create the, this protocol, which is, you know, tornado cash with no traces unless, you know, at the, the node level or, you know, you can somehow trace where this, how this wallet was created, um, somehow backtrack it with like, I guess, cybersecurity forensics back to them in some way. I don't know if that's going to be implemented in some way, but that kind of gets rid of the point of, private transactions um but yeah yeah i mean there is possibility of a lot of havoc being brought but also because you know it's a fully anonymous so so one of the things that aztec enables is like which i loved from a product standpoint is it's not just a private blockchain or a private sorry it's not a blockchain it's not just a private layer two it's like it, it also has a public component to it because there are just some things you can't do in a complete private state for example, like yeah. you can't build Uniswap the way we know it, at least in the private world. Like if you were to build Uniswap in a complete private world. So like, what does that even mean? That means like all the state that is stored by the Uniswap contract would be private. That means me as a trader wouldn't even know how much liquidity there is in an ETH die pool. And that's <laughs> something that I need to know before I trade. Right? Yeah. Or even before I do, uh, I become a liquidity provider. Like I want to know how much, if I put in five ETH, how much money I'll come out. And that has to be like a public component. Right? Yeah, yeah. Or um, for like lending where you have to put in collateral, I need to know how, like liquidators need to know how much collateral you've put so they can liquidate you. 
which mm. is the core concept of like maker or every other lending system right like you yeah. have off-chain liquidators that can like do this and that's how the protocol runs smoothly always and the only way you can interact with a private contract right is by knowing that bytecode the bytecode yeah so like you can fetch it you can fetch the bytecode from like a merkle tree that we'll have like a contract merkle tree you query that and that's how you can be sure that it's the same as the, the bytecode you have is the same as the bytecode on the network yeah that makes sense so you would have to have some inside information to even do that kind of stuff but i wonder oh hmm, i guess not Hmm. I'm just wondering, yeah, because like, okay, let's say, you know, obviously black hats are going to come on. It's going to be the hub for black hats to one fund, fund their wallets and two, even do exploits because then they can trace, you know, get just like backtrack and get away instantly with just like a single, you know, a couple of anonymous transactions. I mean, good luck trying to find it unless there is, you know, some fundamental leak within the, the protocol itself or like node where you can kind of trace back. But yeah, it also depends, right? Like, what if the the token itself is a public token, for example, on Aspect? Yeah, yeah. There, when you transfer, you kind of know, right? So, like, it really depends on like on so many things mm-hmm. that I wouldn't necessarily believe that it's going to be the hub for for exploiters to come in and like run away with the money. There's something like there's something that's really beautiful about like you can see that in Ethereum too, right? Like, in in theory. People are anonymous in, in blockchain land, right? Like we all just addresses. And there are so many hacks that happen on Ethereum. And like, yeah, uh, the black hats are really successful in that they can take the money out of Curve or whatever DeFi protocol. It's hacked. How do they take the money out? How do they materialize the money, right? Like yeah, yeah. let's say you, you successfully hack like 10 million USDC, right? Sure. Mm-hmm. How will you actually use that money? How will you, let's say, like take it to your bank? account or like put it in another DeFi protocol or whatever without alerting everyone and having the entire community work against you yeah yeah i mean that's the reality of that but you know when you bring in this platform of anonymous transactions you can just kind of filter them out by like you know a thousand dollars every so often or ten thousand every you know just small increments to not alert anything it just looks normal really so i guess something like that to be honest would be the way i guess from my yeah, there'll be like probably some compliance tools that app developers build to like make sure nothing else happens there or yeah mm-hmm. there's also like a long way out right so like there's there's a lot of things that will happen that can make it all work mm-hmm. in a way that it's still secure and doesn't rob everyone or something because then it's like pointless yeah yeah i agree but I guess if you're thinking about, you know, if you want it to be completely anonymous, if it, if something is completely anonymous, that would always happen. There's always going to be the, you know, the evil or black black hat side of yeah. any innovation, right? And I don't know if it's really can be stopped without implementing, you know, very limiting implementations or features that kind of like get rid of the core, I guess, core idea of what, what it was meant to be. Hmm. Yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting. But yeah, yeah. What what fascinates me is like just the ability of like learning, just building like my own raw skill of like thinking very deeply about things, mm-hmm. understanding what how a deep tech startup operates. Because again, like for most from my perspective, 
most of the time, like Aztec was this like R&D company. And like, it's now in a process where it's like shipping products, right? Like you had Noir, you had Aztec Connect. Um, mm-hmm. You'll soon have like the Aztec L2. So like, what does it take to like go from R&D or like proper science to a product? How do you do that? Mm-hmm. But also as an engineer, how do you reason about this? Because on one side, you have to be really careful about security. On the other side, you want to ship fast. Because you are a company. And on the third side, because you're a protocol, you have to make these core decisions. Like, how do you think deeply about impact of certain things? Like, what is needed? What is not? If this happens, what does this mean for security or speed or reliance or whatever? Yeah, that makes makes sense. I I wonder the security, if there's going to be any more, like, kind of exploits. If you introduce any new, like, opcodes or any... You know how EVM has, you know, re-entrancy and that's specific to EVM, Right. It, yeah. It's an EVM introduced vulnerability. Not, it's a feature which turns out to be a vulnerability in some states, in, in some instances. So I wonder if that, yeah. if you're bringing, bringing in any features that are native to Aztec that can possibly like be, well, yeah, just new features that are different to uh, the EVM. Yeah, like on, on the plus side, so I actually did a panel about this in DEF CON where I was back still at Reddit, and I the, the panel was with Aztec, Starkware, and Fuel, which in my opinion are like the only three layer twos that are doing something that's not EVM compatible, that are like right. trying to create like brand new paradigms. And the whole thesis of the talk was like, yes, we've had EVMs, but over the last seven years, the way we have used blockchain itself has changed. And there are many new issues that popped up that no one could have thought about, like MEV, but also re-entrancy and other things. Mm-hmm. So like, and these are like, some of these are like fundamental issues of EVM. So what can we do? So like the only way to solve those issues or the only way to build for the future is like build a new kind of EVM right. kind of thing. So like how, what does that even mean? Or like what kind of sort of new paradigms does that entail? Right? So like, for example, with Fuel, it was all about like a very, very like parallelized blockchain. It's like super fast. So um, the concept of Fuel was just like, um, everyone is like the, the virtual machine is only 64 bits as opposed to like EVM, which is 256 bits. The idea mm-hmm. behind that is like all like modern architectures, computers are 64 bits. So that means you can do processes much faster than if you have a 256 bit machine. That's one. And the other part was like most of their contracts have like a shared RAM, like of 64 megabytes, I believe, but don't quote me on this. And so like, you know, RAM was the database. So it's like much more quicker to optimize. So like fuel was just doing everything it takes, like have a super, super, super quick there too, because it was their opinion that even with like current rollups, the thing that you will hit eventually will be execution, right? Like to take a step back, like we built rollups because we started hitting execution problems in Ethereum. Like it just became too expensive to execute on Ethereum. Um, mm-hmm. And so we built rollups. And today, like all rollups are expensive still because of data availability. So like everyone, every block, every rollup is like focusing on re- reducing their data availability costs, right? Which is mm-hmm. good. But like, let's say we're like five, 10 years in the future and like data availability costs are much lower for, you know, various, because of various innovations. Eventually all the rollups will again, once again, hit the same execution problems. Yeah. And like, this was this was Fuel's thing. And they were like, yeah, okay. So like, you know what? All these are like 
trying too hard to just solve like this data availability issue and they can survive for 10 years, we'll just skip this whole 10 year of thing and we'll just run towards the next issue, which will happen kind of thing. And so one of the other things here was like UTXO state and a couple other things and they have their own language, right? And that would open up like new kinds of paradigms. Similar, like similarly with Starkware, right? Like they had their own like language called Cairo and because it's ZK based, it's not 256 bits, but rather 254 bits, which turns out is the size of like field elements when you want to do any elliptic curve operations that involves like zero knowledge proofs. And like, yeah, they have their own design decisions that they make. And, yeah. and like Aztec was like, okay, one of the, uh, like, according to the founders of Aztec, like it was like um, one of the things that might, that might stop the mass adoption of blockchain is like how public everything is. Like if I know your address, I can know your entire network, but also all the things you do. There is yeah. no concept of in information asymmetry. So maybe if we solve that, we can have a much easier time bringing, let's say banks on board or even like companies like Reddit on board where they don't, where like people might have like these NFTs on Reddit, like collectible avatars, but they don't want to show necessarily like show it out to everyone to prevent spam or abuse or whatever. Mm -hmm. and I don't know if there's an actual problem with Reddit. I'm just speculating. We're giving like random examples. <laughs> Coming that you've just left Reddit. Um. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I don't know if this was an issue. Because I was working on a separate project. So what were you doing at Reddit? And why did you end up like leaving Reddit? At Reddit, one of the ideas was like, what happens if you have sort of decentralized reputation? So like have, there's karma on Reddit, but there's also like subreddit karma. Mm. And what happens if, can we like put subreddit karma on chain? Right. Mm. And that would enable like a lot of super interesting things like, proper reputation systems amongst other things. And what, like one of the first fundamental issues we hit was obviously like blockchains don't have, or any like layer one or even like any roll up today doesn't have that kind of compute available right. for ready to pull this off in a cheap way or in a sustainable fashion. So one of the coolest projects I got to do is I was involved in like working with Arbitrum on like they built Arbitrum Nova uh, which yeah. is, yeah, uh, they build like Arbitrum Nova, which is like called AnyTrust, I guess. And like, just like seeing how that would work, getting an early sneak peek, um, being part of that like whole design and using it and being one of the first people, one of the first companies to launch on AnyTrust was a phenomenal, phenomenal thing experience for me. Because we launched on the, on the first day that AnyTrust was launched. And that was kind of scary, but also super cool. Um, you could just see the adoption numbers and Arbitrum Nova just increase as we started deploying. Yeah, that was just a fantastic process. Um, later on, as Reddit collectible avatars grew in a huge form, engulfing like millions of users, uh, mm. which was like previously unseen in, in crypto, like from an app level perspective. Yeah, yeah. We also had our own like crypto wallet within Reddit uh -huh. mobile app. And like, how do you create a good crypto wallet, like non-custodial, such that normal people can use it? And it's super interesting, right? Because um, like, you know, say you, you have a MetaMask Chrome extension, right? And then um, you have this password that sort of like encrypts your MetaMask. And what happens if you like forget your password, right? Like mm. you're kind of gone. And that's why the best practice is like, you have to store your private key. So even if you lose your password, you're okay. But yeah, no yeah. one's realistically, no one in the normal world is actually going to like, 
copy and paste their private key in a very secure location because apparently you're telling me I can't even put it on Google Drive. I can't put it in my Gmail. I can't put it like anywhere that has internet access. So like, what am I meant to do? And then like people say like, oh yeah, you should like write it down on a piece of paper. So what are you telling me to write passwords on a piece of paper? I thought in like all of 90s and 2000s, every security person said never write down your password. So what's happening here? But maybe because this is like the Reddit mobile app and everyone uses Reddit, maybe you can get away with not writing your private key. But of course you're going to forget your password and you can't just like, what happens if you forget your password? Because it's your password that encrypts the private key, right? Like a super naive solution that Reddit could do was, for example, imagine if um, you set your own password for the Reddit wallet, and then we encrypt your private key with that wallet, with that password, and then we store it in our database, right? There's a super naive solution, bunch of issues, right? But let's say we do that. In theory, this is still okay because Reddit doesn't know my Reddit wallet, does not know what password yeah. I'm using, and they're storing it encrypted into the database. But like what happens here if I forget my password, then even Reddit can't help me. And Reddit shouldn't be able to help you because this is a non-custodial wallet. Because if, if we are building a custodial wallet, then we are like a bank. And Reddit is not a bank, Reddit is a social media company. Yeah, were you working on the development of the wallet as well? Yeah, on the back end side, not the not on the front end side, not on the mobile side. But like, yeah. yeah, yeah. Like, so what did it really take to make a, a wallet? Because I think that's even a field that I haven't even gone into really um first of all you have the the generation of the wallet and then i don't know if people like probably metamask tracks your where it comes from but i guess what what does what does it take to create a, a wallet basically from scratch yeah there's like a whole ux angle to it as well even if you forget security like the easiest thing is you know like if you go through the creation of a crypto wallet today you get tons of pop-ups that really scare you they talk about do not lose your private key. Do not give it to anyone. Do not be susceptible to scams or phishing attempts. And like sort of we onboard people by really scaring them. It's yeah. so many do nots, right? And yeah. it still scares me a lot. I'll be really honest. That's just not how you onboard people. Can you imagine when you're creating a Google account, like Google will onboard you with 100,000 do nots and really scare you. Like, why would I use your product if all you're saying is 100 ways that I can be scammed and lose all my money? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's like the first UX problem. And like the second one is there are still so many steps to create a wallet. Like, I think there's a stat out there in the world that says humans like wait less than five seconds for a website to load. And if it doesn't, they walk out, mm, they like close yeah. the tab or reload or just like get distracted kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So so from the back end perspective, what, what did it really take to create one? Not necessarily like the UX or UI. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, one of the things is like, can people just get to what they want really quickly? So how many steps can they skip? Um, or can they do some steps now and other steps later? For example, can they quickly just create a password now and like, we don't even tell them to copy their private key or whatever. And much later, they can start from where they left off, which is like copy your private key to somewhere safe, right? Yeah, um, yeah. So keeping that context in the database and then pushing it at an appropriate time much later. So for example, like the typical in, in Reddit, like usually people will create their wallet to claim their avatar. Mm -hmm. So like just quickly create like a password, which is kind of like, you know, the old school login system that we all are familiar with. and for you now, it looks like you have your NFT. Um, but to get the NFT again, 
usually to claim it, you need to pay gas, right? Mm-hmm. But of course, there's a new wallet. So how do you do all of that? Because again, we want really, really small, almost no buttons that users have to click and it should be in under five seconds or whatever. Um, so you implement like metas, meta transactions into the backend side, which is like mainly EIP 712, I believe. And the meta transactions is basically like a very fancy way of saying, you do the signing of what you want to do and I'll do the executing, which means like the user would sign that they want to claim this NFT with this ID, this smart contract address, and then Reddit would pay for it, right? But then if you go Mm -hmm. a step deeper and then you start thinking, okay, like that's all, like let's use a random other company's example. So like my company um, wants to pay for all of your transactions, right? So you go on my company's website and you say, I want to claim this. And then I will have, my company will have its own wallet that's going to pay. That means it's going to be stored on the server with real funds. Like it's like a hot key, like a hot wallet rather than a cold wallet because it's going to be used so often. So like if my server gets compromised, I'm going to lose all of my money. Whoopsie. So how do you, how do you store that key securely? But there are limits to how much security you can do and like how secure your key can be. Sometimes you can also just mess up because no matter how good of an engineer you are, you're a human. So what else can you do? Well, Arbitrum as a roll-up has like this amazing thing called gas refunder. I think that's what they call it. They actually ran into an issue a few, some time back where there's, it seemed like their sequencer was not sending batches into Ethereum, into L1. And the real reason that seemed to be the case from what I remember, is it seemed like the sequencer was running, didn't have enough funds to pay. Mm -hmm. Because what was happening was the sequencer has like a really small amount of ETH, right? So even if that the money gets lost, it's fine. It's really, really small amount. Let's say like $10 or $20 or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then you have like a smart contract called gas refunder that actually stores all the other ETH. Because like smart contracts don't have keys. Externally yeah, yeah. owned accounts, EOAs have keys. So you can only take funds out of a smart contract by using certain dedicated functions. Like you would literally have to write a smart contract logic that allows you to withdraw the funds. And, you know, managing that that particular function that pays the money out is much more easier, right? Like in Solidity speak, this would be have one modifier, like only owner and only let them call this function, mm-hmm. right? And you can write hundreds of tests to make sure it's fine. Yeah, so like yeah. what was happening, what you can do is like leave all your actual money there and then the sequencer using its $20, which is let's assume that's enough for one batch, it probably isn't, but let's assume it is. It first like it sends this. It first like calls the gas refunder, and then the gas refunder then posts, you know, the batch into layer one roll-up contract. And then after that transaction is done, the gas refunder then computes how much gas was used. This is super easy using the gas left opcode in Ethereum. Like you call gas left first before doing the transaction like posting to layer one, and then you call gas left again once you've posted to L1, and you can figure out how much gas was used. And then you multiply it with like, what you expect would be the gas price, which is like, let's say congestion fee. You multiply both of them, and then you get the total amount of money, like in ETH that you've spent for the transaction. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what you can refund the sequencer with. So by the end of it, the sequencer again, once again, is refunded with the money that they use. So they probably again have like $19 or $20, whatever. And then you can have like a metric or a dashboard system, like old old school web two style reporting, 
where if the sequencer is running really low, like way below, like let's say $5, then you have like a SEV1 or a SEV2 alarm going off for an on-call engineer. And all the on-call engineer now has to do is just like put some ETH into that smart contract, into into the sequencer's wallet, like a one-minute job, mm. right? Um, or maybe you could have like some kind of a cron job, like a multi-sig that periodically every every 30 days just puts like $10 into the sequencer and $100 into the gas refunder or whatever kind of thing. Mm-hmm. A beautiful design in AnyTrust and Arbitrum Nova was that anyone could actually put money into the sequencer's wallet address. So like, let's oh. say I really want my thing to go and like for whatever reason, the sequencer doesn't have enough money, I'll just put some, right? Mm. And that's amazing. It's really nice. Uh, I don't need to wait for off-chain labs or whatever roll-up company this is. Mm-hmm. to f- fulfill it and this was like extra extra nice in case of arbitrum nova because how do you compute the gas price on layer 2 network there are like two aspects to it one is um, just whatever you think is the gas price of ethereum you know mm-hmm. which is like it can be really high or really low really quickly there's it's pretty much unpredictable right because some random dude could create like a random rock NFT and everyone's going berserk about it because mm-hmm. this is the degen life we all live in. So one component is just like the amount of price that the sequencer has to pay on L1, but mm-hmm. the other component is records the network's own congestion fee. So what, one of the things that, that Arbitrum does is the sequencer over enough time or over enough batches tries to minimize the amount of extra money they have, correct, they have collected. So let's say they use like a prediction algorithm to assume that it'll take me $500 to post the next batch. So mm-hmm. I need to collect $500 worth of gas fees from my L2 users, right? And then let's say the actual price of posting the transaction was only 300. So now they have 200 extra. So for the next batch, they'll charge 200 lesser, mm-hmm. which means if I, if my company who's using Arbitrum Nova um, wants really low gas fees for all my users, one really simple, stupid hack I need to do is fool the sequencer. Just like put five hundred dollars in their in their address, and now they'll think that oh, I have overcharged my users massively. Shit, I feel bad. I'm gonna undercharge all my users such that I eventually come down to my normal values, which is again, let's say twenty dollars or whatever, mm. right? Um, and this to me, this is like a super genius, super amazing design. A really good product too. Right? Yeah, but why, I'll, I'll why, stop my rant there. I don't know how I reach it. <laughs> <but> yeah. <laughs> why? Why would the sequencers care if they're paying? You know, people are paying a lot, right? Like, and then they just push their their prices down. Why would they care about that? Ah, well, because if people are paying a lot of money, then that's bad for the users. We never want to overcharge users. Like, blockchains anywhere are expensive, and it's really bad UX if users have to pay more than they need to. So the goal of a good sequencer should always be two things. One, well, the goal of any blockchain network is to have as cheap transactions as possible and to make it as quick as possible, right? That's why we have so many competitors of Ethereum in the world today, because Ethereum is not cheap to use and it's super slow as well. Mm. Yeah, but, you know, everybody just clones that, right? So then you just have the saturation of everybody's the exact same fast and cheap, but you know, everybody just defaults back to Ethereum though. So 
there's got to be something. Yeah, else. which is yeah, which is why it's like interesting to have unique virtual machines like Fuel or Aztec or Starcraft because they're at least trying something new to see if maybe that sticks. But there are like non-technical issues with doing something that's not EVM compatible, which is the fact that most of blockchain networks somehow is EVM compatible, and that's the world most developers know the most about. Mm. Um, yeah, so it's like I mean, much harder to get users to use it. Yeah, yeah. If if it's not compatible, then they have to learn this entire new language. You know, the environment. Yeah. You know, node operators have to learn like the customizations to this, how to deploy it. If it's yeah, I mean, it's just a whole new ecosystem you have to learn, and even yeah. just to master, you know, Ethereum and the smart contracts and the nodes, all that stuff that takes ages. So. Yeah, yeah and there's something like, for example, we can really complement Solana in, which is like they are something that's not EVM compatible at all. You know, you have like your own wallets, your own RPCs, your own like tools, and yet somehow they manage to gain a lot of users. Mm. Yeah, yeah, um, this is true. I don't know why. It was all because of the NFT craze, I think, but... The initial. It like, could be like it could be like how bull markets work. It could be because of airdrop. It could also be because of SBF. God bless that man. Um, I was being sarcastic. It could be also because they were just they just made a really good product. It could also be because like because they had a new virtual machine. They enabled like new kinds of architectures that were just not possible on Ethereum. And maybe mm. that's like because yeah. Like we all know what can work on Ethereum, but what we but we also clearly know that whatever works today clearly isn't getting mass adoption. So we need something different, and maybe different mm. VMs will let you finally experiment with what's different. Like, what if you can finally have a counter abstraction inbuilt into the protocol in a non-hacky way? Like, I love ERC four three three seven, which is you know the current rage about how to get a counter abstraction on EVM. But at the end of the day, it's not. It's kind of hacky. It adds mm. gas. There are some issues with batching of transactions. There are some DOS vectors, attack vectors, which they have reduced by not allowing certain transactions to even happen, right? And eventually, if any roll-up, any EVM-compatible machine gets enough traction, they're going to hit into the same execution limits that Ethereum has hit now. Um, yeah, they'll probably yeah. hit the same state bloat limits too. So like very- you're, you're going to keep hitting the same problems. So that's kind of like insanity. You're doing the same thing and expect different things to come out this time. You know, it'd be super interesting if something like Aztec or, or ZKVM had account abstraction. Because then you're combining. Like, uh, we oh, will. Oh. We are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's one of the great things you get when you're building your own VM. You can just like, you won't have any of these issues. Mm, that's a very interesting kind of playing field. Because then, you know, you have private transactions, but then you also have the ability for someone else to execute on your behalf. Yeah, you could also have like, so in the in the authentication world, you have a standard called WebAuthN, which is how, you know, like Face ID and Touch ID and all these things actually work. You know, if you are building your own network, you have the luxury to go like, hey, do I want my users to instead of playing with these like private public key stuff or even like these random smart contract wallet things how cool would it be if they could like do a transaction just by doing a face id and what do you need for that you need to be compliant with web authn standards right so if you're building your own vm from scratch you have the luxury of making these decisions maybe this is the way you go you go like i think authn is what's limiting the adoption of crypto i'm building my own blockchain I will 
make all my keys, my authentication schemes to be standardized with WebAuthn and now anyone can use it with WebAuthn, with Face ID or even Touch ID or even old school public private key cryptography or whatever new things that come in the world. There's like in the security world, there's something new called pass keys, which I'll admit yeah. is not something I've read up too deeply on, but I have a super high level understanding of. Maybe you can do that even. And then you can have like Google or Apple login for your private key, which, which, you know, the purists might find weird, but let's be real. The grandmas, my grandma would finally be able to use my work, which is something I would love. Finally. <laughs> finally, like my mom can understand what I'm doing because she can use it. Yeah. Yeah. As long as it's streamlined and in a simple way, kind of just like, you know, credit cards, you just tap on. Right. Yeah. yeah so like one of the reasons I, I, did the switch to like work in Aztec was because it's not just like these random privacy unlocks that you get, even though I'll admit they're cool. It's like you can think about fundamentally new things. They're just impossible in blockchains and you might have a chance of hitting something that leads to mass adoption. Yeah. I mean, you know, try enough things that happens, right? So it's all a numbers game. Yeah. Trying to create your own lock. Yeah, like after Reddit, like I, I had the luxury to say, hey, some of my work was used by like literally millions of users and it was in crypto. And I could understand the steps they took to have that mass adoption. But what if I go a level deeper? So going back to a really old conversation, like about how yeah. super senior engineers seem to know all of these parts and think really deeply. But if I yeah. go really deeper, but also use some of my mass adoption into building something that maybe will work. So what is the main key that you got out of Reddit of building a mass adoption, you know, I guess, product, or at least getting a product to as many users as possible? One of the things is, despite how much we as engineers in the blockchain space love saying that we're working on the super, super, like, hardcore, super cool, like, blockchain thing, and talking yeah. about smart contracts and all that, the end user doesn't care, and you have to minimize all the words, and you have to minimize showing any of that. Right. Um, so like not Simplicity. being able, like minimize bragging about the things that you're doing. You know, like a very like braggy way of saying some of the things that you did is like, I built a non-custodial wallet with meta transactions in build, yeah. uh, which lets you <laughs> claim blah, blah, blah. And like, I've already lost you. Um, all instead, the buzzwords. Yeah, like all the like technical hardcore stuff that really excites all the engineers, but will scare everyone else away. I, I think so. I think like what I really learned is like there are two different crowds, and you want to decide which crowd to cater to. Do you want to cater to the mass adoption crowd, or do you want to cater to the degen crowd? Because both of them are really different people uh, with different requirements and different marketing tactics, even. Right. Yeah. So like, pick a side, basically. Yeah. And most of DeFi is yeah, and like most of DeFi is obviously on like the degen side, and there's nothing wrong with it. It's, it's cool, it's sexy, it's easy to make money. You can be as crazy or weird as you want, have like pancake swap or have a duck in your UI that does ducky things like quack and have a coin called quack and do whatever. Or you can do like boring things that lead to mass adoption. But pick a side. Mm, yeah, it's you really can't do both at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, okay, interesting. So if I, if okay, let's say you created a startup right now what would be your go-to strategy to getting mass adoption? Ooh, I think that depends. Personally, I care. I don't, I wouldn't want to build a wallet product. I would probably like want to build something at the app layer. There, there must be uh, some just general like, set of rules though that you follow to, to get it. Yeah, to so app. like, yeah, I mean, for the wallet side, it's like 
quite easy, but it probably is not possible on the Ethereum side, in Ethereum world. And also yeah. on the wallet side, it's harder to make money or have like a unique proposition that will let people stay, right? But yeah. at the app layer, it's like much more easier. I don't have any like fixed ideas. Like I think that's like the billion dollar question in crypto, right? Like what app oh, yeah. can you build that leads to mass adoption? Um, well, not really like what app, but more of the techniques to get any product. Ah, the techniques? Yeah. yeah. So like, I think an idea could even be like, be custodial for mass mm. adoption or really like start flirting with the idea of some parts custodial, some parts non-custodial, which is to say that like maybe the wallets or you don't store people's assets, but your smart contracts are heavily centralized. So only you can call them. And mm, this prevents okay. a lot of chaos, chaos in the sense that bots will not interact with you. There is lesser chances of MEV that happens, mm. right? And a bunch of other things. So that's one. The other one is like having minimal blockchain, like pure smart contract code and instead optimizing more on like the non-blockchain side of things. So you always have an off-chain component. You know, like either it's a database or like a generic backend server logic and all of that. And really reasoning about how much you can push on the server side rather than the blockchain side because it's unpredictable and it's quite expensive and it's slow. So like one of the things would be as simple as instead of always querying via Infura on the blockchain, like what happened, like did this event happen or not, right? Like let's say you just have a single website. So that's the only point of entry, that front end. And then you can just have a backend and REST API call, like old school stuff. And this way you can, you have your own blockchain cache as a database. Um, and one of the great things this does is like it prevents the number of calls, you, RPC calls you need to do. Um, that reduces your Infura costs and like is faster or like more reliant sometimes. And in the background, you can have a cron job that periodically sort of syncs your database with the network. Mm. Yeah, so really just like trying to make it as streamlined as possible, user experience best, easy to understand. That's yeah, I think like the biggest thing would be like minimizing the amount of chaos that's possible in the system. I think that despite of how fun the chaos is for people like for DGENs like us, it's really bad for users. Like when users realize that people are using blockchain to bet on hamster races, it's not a good look. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I which guess, is I yeah. think something that happened during ETCC, but it's super funny yeah. for us, right? So again, like cater to your market kind of thing. Yeah, I mean the hamsters were crazy, right? But yeah, it yeah. was super funny. I won't lie to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, but you know we 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 have gone to an hour, and uh, I don't want to take too much of your time. I do want to thank you for for jumping on, finally getting to meet you as well, um, and it's been super interesting, man. I'm super keen to see how. Aztec evolves and eventually the release of Aztec is going to be a very long time, I think. So can't wait to see what happens in the future. Uh, but yeah, thank you so much for jumping on, man. Yeah, thank you so much. This was uh, super fun. And yeah, I'm also super excited for Aztec. Um, and for anyone else wanting to jump on the podcast or wanting to suggest someone to come on, just DM me at Scraping Bits and I'll see what I can do. Otherwise, thank you so much for jumping on. And... Hopefully I'll catch you on another one later in the future. Hell yeah. See you around. Thank you so much, Raul. Take care.